I'm reading from the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 22 through 36. Men of Israel, listen to this. Yeshua of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, and he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Yeshua to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has, pro he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Yeshua, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Somewhere in the uh, dim and distant past, um, I was an athlete. I know you may, you may, may have a hard time uh, seeing that. And uh, so when the Olympics get around, um, I like to uh, take some time to, to watch them. I didn't get to do a whole lot this time, um, but I saw the uh, lead into and uh, the fact that uh, the uh, ruler of Russia um, invested all kinds of rubles to get uh, the country prepared and uh, a, a what caught my attention, you, you might have missed it, but what caught my attention is the fact that in Sochi, they reinstituted the uh, Cossack militia. Um, now, for us who have roots in Eastern Europe and are Jewish, uh, the word Cossack is not exactly what you call user-friendly. Um, in fact, uh, a whole bunch of us went to activation ministry up in, in uh, the mountains um, to see uh, a theatrical presentation of Fiddler on the Roof, and uh, it was quite good. 
And uh, part of, by the way, how many have seen Fiddler on the Roof? Okay, I'm preaching to the choir here. You know that um, during the, uh, the wedding of Motel and uh, Zeitel, by the way, it's a Z, but it's not pronounced Zeitel. Um, during the wedding, you have a bunch of Cossacks, Cossacks coming trooping through and tearing and destroying and, and so on and so forth as a little quote-unquote demonstration um, for us who have, who have had family from Eastern Europe, those demonstrations um, sometimes took the f- a fairly deadly form um, that is uh, known as uh, pogroms, uh, anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic riots, where there was burning and pillaging and raping as well. And um, so part of what came through, if you've watched it as you have, you know that there was a very clear sense of us versus them. You know, here you have the Jewish community that is sequestered um, and governed by tradition. And uh, on the other side is them um, who are the Gentiles and neither one has anything to do with each other um, until such time as you have some kind of a directive from the government telling them to come against us. Uh, And, you know, sometimes uh, believers can get into this us versus them kind of a mindset. Um, We live in a society that has been described as postmodern and post-Christian, post a bunch of other things. Um, And the simple... Uh, way to describe it is that uh, um, morals are relative, truth is relative, and uh, you, I'm sure you've heard the um, rather tired expression, what's right for you is right for you, what's right for me is right for me, and obviously people don't think through the uh, logical consequences if what is right for me is to come and bop you on the head well, that doesn't quite look very well as far as what you are concerned. But in any event, part of what can happen sometimes is that we can feel crowded by the world around us, by society around us. And I've seen that take form in a couple of different ways. One is anger. Uh, I've mentioned from time to time that I've been dragged into the 21st century and that part of that is being on Facebook and seeing believers post all kinds of uh, statements indicating their great anger with what's going on in society. Well, that's, that's one form of dealing with it. Um, another one is simple depression, where you get into an escapist mindset that basically says, Lord, take me home today. Now, Yes, Jewish answer here on one hand. uh, If you are a committed follower of Yeshua 
and and you if you have come into a relationship with him where knowing him and being with him is very precious then yeah you can say okay lord um i'm ready however we can use that as an escapist kind of a um mindset uh as if as if we want god to take us in some kind of a pod and and blow us out of a difficult situation and what we often forget folks and please hear me what we often forget is that god does some of his finest work in and through the difficult circumstances that we face in and through the difficult circumstances where we our morals our values bump up, bump up against the values of this world and we take either the angry perspective or else the escapist perspective forgetting the truth of the word of god and here's one of the statements that scripture tells us uh, about how god views these circumstances these uh, situations where we feel pressed where sin increased grace increased all the more so as sin reigned into death so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Yeshua Messiah our Lord the word for increase has the sense of something that is existing in abundance and increasing and and being beyond our expectation Paul makes another statement of that he who was able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or even imagine and so so much of the time we view our circumstances and god through our very limited very narrow perspective all we can see is the fact that we are hemmed in or we think we're hemmed in by society around us by circumstances and because of that instead of seeing the greatness of god the supremacy of god god's ability to do incredible acts in our life and through us then our perspective is colored by absolute negativity and let me put it bluntly our perspective is colored by unbelief in other words we don't trust that god is big enough to be able to take and transcend go beyond the circumstances that we're faced that, that we face and so because of that what comes out of us is a negative message where we look at folks around us and we have absolutely no clue how the grace of god can impact them because of who we are because of who god is in us and i want to just pause for a minute because this might stretch your boundaries a little bit this morning and so i want to pray that if that happens it is god's doing lord 
we thank you and we praise you that you are El Elyon, God Most High. We thank you, Lord God, that you have called us, you have tasked us, you have gifted us, you have everything we need, Lord God, to be your vessels to touch folks around us. We pray, Lord, for eyes of faith today to see what you want to say to us through your word. And we ask this in Yeshua's name. Amen. So as you can imagine, you see that these disciples have a totally different mindset than they did 10 days before. If you remember in chapter 1, Yeshua talks to them and teaches them and, and uh, uh, declares to them the mysteries of the counsel of God. And their response is, Lord, what's up with Israel and the Romans? Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Which is legitimate concern. However, they really didn't understand what the Lord had been teaching them all along. You find a different perspective here about 10 days later. And as you remember, Peter begins by, first of all, explaining to people, these pilgrims and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, that what was taking place was not that the disciples were snockered, that they were drunk out of their mind, as some of them were thinking, but that this, what they, the fact that they were speaking, these Galilean hillbillies were speaking in all kinds of languages was indicative of the fact that the Spirit of God has been poured out on people and that this is a major sign of the fact that the kingdom of God, the Messianic era, has begun. And of course he taught or, or he explained things from Joel which, which for any of the God-fearing Jews who were there was something that they knew. They were very familiar with scripture because the, the Torah and the prophets were read each Shabbat and I have no doubt when Peter speaks to them about Joel chapter 2 that they're familiar And part of what we forget when we see Peter speaking here is that he was sticking his neck out. Now remember, folks, a month and a half, a, a, a hateful mob grabbed Yeshua and with the help of the Romans beat him to a pulp and had him crucified. And circumstances outwardly had not changed. You still had the same basic religious establishment that was opposed to anything having to do with Yeshua. That had not changed, folks. And a lot of the same people who cried, crucify him, were still around. So Peter is sticking his neck out when he's talking about Yeshua. 
it's hard for us to get our arms around because fortunately we don't live in a country where if we were to speak about Yeshua, someone would come up and try to um, stone us or, or behead us like they do in other countries. But again, remember that underneath what we see visibly, there's a whole, a whole bunch that was taking place invisibly. Again, remember that what we see in Acts chapter 2 is like the tip of the iceberg. That in order for things to take place, where Peter talks and, and a couple of thousand people say, yes, I do, that God had to be working underneath that and prepping all kinds of, uh, uh, doing all kinds of work of preparation. Both in terms of the disciples who were scared of their own shadow a month and a half before, and also the, the pilgrims who had come. And the pilgrims were really not interested in the Messiah, as the disciples knew Yeshua, but the pilgrims were interested in worshiping God, yes, but also in the Messiah who would come and deliver the people from the yoke of the Romans. We also need to remember the fact that there are many, many sermons that were delivered both by the prophets and also in the book of Acts that really did not have a huge impact. For example, you read Paul's masterful sermon that is given in, in the city of Athens and there's not a whole lot happening. So the fact that something dramatic is happening here is clearly, clearly due to the fact that God rolled up his sleeves and went to work in a big way. And again, it isn't because of Peter. Peter is your standard issue fisherman and he is not being very nice. There's nothing PC about Peter's description, Peter's presentation. Verse 23 and then I'll read from 36. This man was handed over to you by God's purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross, or complete Jewish Bible to the stake. Verse 36, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this, that God has made this Yeshua, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Now let me very quickly point out the fact that this is in-house criticism. Okay, this is one Jew talking to another Jew. This was by no means designed to, to be ammunition for the anti-Semitism in the church where people looked at that and say, see, Peter says this about you Jews. And it's the same kind of criticism that the prophets leveled at the nation of Israel. So, the fact that something's going to happen here, again, is not because of Peter, not necessarily because of the pilgrims, but because of what God was doing. And I want to park in verse 22 for a few minutes. So please look with me. Men of Israel, listen to this. Yeshua of Nazareth was accredited to God by you by miracles, wonders, and signs which, which God did among you through him, as you yourself know. Now why does Peter take this tack to talk about 
God accrediting Yeshua, and we'll talk about this in a moment or so. Again, remember that crucifixion was a death that was often reserved for common criminals. And in a Jewish mindset, crucifixion was an indication of God's judgment, God's curse on someone. Remember that that the Torah puts it this way, that anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed by God. Because it indicates the the fact that they were guilty of sin to such an extent that, that they deserved this kind of death. So you can see that naturally speaking for the pilgrims and inhabitants of Jerusalem following a dead Messiah who was crucified, who was hung on on a cross uh, was not particularly attractive. That still, by the way, is the mindset of much of the Jewish community, much of Judaism today for a different reason because of the horrible history that we've experienced through the anti-Semitism that came, that was directed at us through the church. Oddly enough, at the same time, you have a number of Jewish intellectuals and artists who view Yeshua as the epitome of Jewish suffering. But again, the majority consider Yeshua to be someone who is off limits. To give you an example, when when Joy became a believer, her mother exhorted her by saying, don't talk to me about Jesus. It is disgusting. I don't think I, I, I have quite the right nuance there, but those were the words. So, Again, for the pilgrims to consider, even to consider the claims, the messianic claims of someone who was crucified was a steep learning curve, was was by no means means easy for them to connect any kind of dots. So Peter has to come back to what they knew and what they understood. And here is, coming back to verse 22, God, Yeshua of Nazareth, was accredited, approved to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him. Where does that expression come from? Miracles, wonders, and signs. It doesn't come from the charismatic movement. It, it, It comes a little further back. It comes from the book of Exodus and for the book of Deuteronomy. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart and though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will release you. Then this is Exodus 7.3 and then Deuteronomy 7.19. You saw with your own eyes the great trials, the miraculous signs and wonders and mighty hand and outstretched arm with which God, the Lord your God, brought you out. So when Peter speaks about signs and wonders and miracles, he's drawing the attention of the listeners to the history of Israel. 
And remember, he's saying in, that, in a sense to them, remember what God did back then in Egypt. He did the same thing, the same thing through this man who was crucified, but yes, he validated him. And the word for validated is, I find very intriguing because it means to cause something to be known as the, as the real deal. Something that is genuine. In other words, Yeshua was on stage and God demonstrated the fact that he was the real thing. And by the way, there were other miracle workers from Galilee. Yeshua was not the only miracle worker. But when you compare some of the other miracle workers and Yeshua, uh, there's really no comparison. It's like apples and giraffes. <laughs> so we have a hard time getting our arms around the fact that God validated Yeshua and his ministry and we need to make the connection between Yeshua and ourselves because we are his followers. Just like Yeshua lived, we are supposed to live likewise. And so if God validated Yeshua, he has to validate what is real and genuine in us. Amen. Can you say amen to that? The Lord is not obligated to validate us and because we're cute and clever and we do things wonderfully well, etc. God, God is obligated to validate what is of Him and what He is doing in us. And He strengthens what, is, what He is doing in us. Again, the point is not to draw attention to this pot of clay. The point is to draw attention to what's in us that is of God. The Lord wants to strengthen that. So the point, part of the application for us is you and I do not need to prove ourselves to anybody, including ourselves. We don't have to justify ourselves to anybody. Why? Because it's God's business. Where we are on target, he will see to it that we're vindicated. Where we are off target, he will point that out. And I don't know about you, I want that. Because where there's junk, I want the junk dealt with. I know, I just crossed the line here. So God vindicated Yeshua and all of that was part of the plan and design. In other words, this was not accidental. And I would say this is one of the toughest truths in scripture for us to get our arms around. The simple reality is that God has a plan for you and I. I know it looks like I'm speaking some dialect of Chinese here. But we live life essentially as if God is off screen. 
get up in the morning, do our thing, go to bed at night. And every so often we yell out to God, Lord, I need help. Would you please come and sprinkle pixie dust and help me out here? A little grace and favor today. And we assume that what takes place in our life takes place in our life because we are the ones who are doing it. And I'll cross the line again. We are, in lots of ways sometimes, practical atheists. If God was taken out of the picture, we would essentially carry on and do life the same way as we're doing now. Why? Because we don't have a basic grasp of the fact that God is at work and He is at work specifically to carry out His plan. This truth of Scripture is so flimsy in our minds. And the Word of God is so emphatic about this reality. Let me read to you a couple of statements. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what will come. I say, my purpose will stand my counsel will stand and I will do what I please. Now if you or I were to say this, we would be uh, hauled off and locked up in a mental institution. But since this is God speaking, it either has to be reality or he's not God. And that doesn't just apply on a macro level to what's happening in the Central Republic of Africa or in the Middle East and Syria and Iraq and so on or in the United States. It also happens on a micro level, on the personal, the individual level. Because scripture again and again speaks about the fact that God is working in us. And if he is working in us, He is not just working to help us out in the sense of, Lord, I know Scripture says that you help those that help themselves, and so I need a little extra help here. By the way, that comes from a a French satirist by the name of Rabelais, not from Scripture. God is at work, and He does work sometimes in strange ways and and here the fact that Yeshua was hung on a tree was not an accident it wasn't because these this Jerusalemite mob had a bad hair day and, and they were spurred by by the jealous Sadducees and Pharisees the fact that Yeshua was hung on a on a tree was part of God's design going way back And in order for these guys to be able to do that, to carry out what took place, God had to give them authority. And this is a truth that you see throughout Scripture, that nothing happens in our life without God giving it into us. I know it's kind of hard on the ego because you want to say, I earned it, I work hard, I got it, etc., etc. God laughs. Here are a couple of examples. In Joshua, by the way, the 
statement earlier was from Isaiah 46, verses 9 to 10. As Israel is conquering the land of Canaan, what you see again and again is this one phrase, God gave them over, Natan. He gave them over. He, he gave their enemies over to them. And because of that, they were able to conquer the land. You see that also, this is, I read from Joshua 21. You see the same thing with Yeshua. He makes the following statement. You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. So God's sovereignty... What, what does God's sovereignty look like? means basically two things. God has a plan. God has the power to bring into reality his plan. He gives authority to us to, to fulfill our assignments. And because of that, we're able to participate in God's plan. But it is God's plan. So Peter understands all of that. That is why he says that you guys put him on the tree with the help of the Romans because it was given to you. Now again, remember, this guy's a fisherman. He didn't go to seminary. He didn't study theology about the magnificence of who God is and so on and so forth. Yes, he knew the prophets. But at this point, the word of God just jumped out at him. And he's speaking the word of God. It had to be there to begin with. But he's speaking God's word. So what he's saying is that Yeshua was hung on a tree because it was God's plan. But before that, God validated Yeshua's life and ministry through miracles. And he also validated Yeshua in, a, in another way, through the resurrection. Of course, he's quoting from Psalm chapter 16, where, where you have a glimpse of the resurrection, where David says, you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your holy one to suffer corruption. Now let me just pause for a minute and explain that Sheol is not the place of eternal torment. Not, to, not hell in, in the sense that we usually think of. In fact, when you look in the New Testament over and over and over again, the word hell means one thing. It means a place of judgment and torment. Sheol is a different idea. It just means a place where the dead lie, the grave. So if you are raised in the church and you're used to the Apostles' Creed that speaks about Yeshua descending into hell, let me quickly point out that Yeshua did not go into a place of torment. Just place of the dead so the resurrection is the ultimate expression of God's power validating who Yeshua is verse 24 
of chapter 2 here in Acts. God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep him, excuse me, to keep its hold on him. And here again is another very uh, powerful word because it gives you the idea of death being sort of like a bulldog. You know, once it grabs its hold, um, you have to use a two-by-four to get him to release it. And what Peter is saying here, in essence, is that God took a two-by-four to death and whacked it so that it had to release Yeshua from the dead. This is part of the validation of Yeshua. And you think about it, that without that, you and I would be following a dead Messiah. By the way, there is a sect in Judaism that is doing just that, is following Rabbi Schneerson, whom they are convinced was or is the Messiah. Verse 36, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Yeshua, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Now why did Peter not say he made him Messiah and God? In fact, as you go through the New Testament, it is extremely rare to find a statement that explicitly states that Yeshua is God. Before you throw stones at me, let me amplify what I'm saying. You've got to remember that first century Judaism was very allergic to anything that looked like idolatry. And so the apostles had to communicate who Yeshua is in a Jewish way without saying Yeshua is God explicitly but implicitly. And so you have all sorts of ways throughout the New Testament that make it real clear who we're talking about. Especially in the book of Revelation chapter 5 where we see the Lamb as being worshipped. And the same kind of language that is used about the Father sitting on a throne is used to refer to Yeshua. And if Yeshua was not God, was not deity, you and I would be guilty of worshiping a false god. However, we have to stay within the kind of language that Scripture uses rather than say, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that says it right here. It really doesn't. So, again, don't throw stones at me. Just learn to think from, a, from the perspective of a first century Jew. Because that's how the word of God is given. So the people hear this wonderful message explaining who Yeshua is. And do they stand back and say, Oh, Peter, yo, that was pretty good. Thank you for giving us an explanation of who your Messiah is that you've been following all this time. All right, let's, let's uh, get on. Uh, we're hungry. Lunch is coming. If that's all it was, folks, people's attitude would be, all right, thank you, we're out of here. 
But as we saw a couple of weeks ago, they were cut to the quick. Something about those words. And again, remember, those words are just words. But those words are anointed, empowered by the Spirit of God. And God is working. The, the iceberg is below and we see just, just the evidence on top. They're cut to the quick. They realize that they heard something and they have to, do, they have to act on it. Again, remember that biblically the notion of hearing is never for the purpose of just hearing. The Hebrew word for hear, shma, means to hear with intent to follow and obey. And also, knowing the book of Joel, these guys knew that the book of Joel talked about the need for repentance. Where Joel speaks about the Spirit of God being poured out, it's in the context of the nation turning to God, repenting of their sin. And so what Peter is saying to them in so many words is you guys are guilty of not accepting Yeshua or rejecting him. Turn. Repent. Everyone who does that will be saved. Again, remember that in Joel, salvation has to do more with the sense of being delivered from bad circumstances. Here it's very obviously referring to spiritual restoration. Peter is saying to them, you guys heard, now act. Repent, be immersed, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we often hear what Peter is saying. We often hear what scripture is saying to us about the coming of the spirit and, and we just glom on to the manifestations. What we have to realize, folks, is that the biggest thing about the spirit of God coming is that we have the presence of God in our life in a way that we didn't have before. Amen. Somehow, the fact that God is with us becomes a reality. Not just something in our head, but something that we learn to live out so that our lives are transformed. Why? Because of the presence of God, because of the, the action of the, the Holy Spirit in our life. But part of the picture here is that if it happens or as it happens, repentance has to be part of it. This unfortunately has become a dirty word for folks. Because we are, we have been brainwashed by the message of society and sometimes the church that says, I'm okay, you're okay. You know, those of us who are cynical would say, I'm okay, you're dysfunctional. <laughs> so the notion of repenting means there's something wrong. There's something wrong with us. 
And what that simply means is that we have the presence and activity of God in our life, which by definition means we'll point out junk in our life. And perhaps you're here and you say, you know, I like my junk. I want to hang on to it. My junk, thank you. Or you can say, Lord, I'm aware that you've done good things in me. I'm aware that you've brought about cleansing and I'm aware that I'm not the same person I was two or three years ago. But I know that there's stuff in me that needs to be cleansed. And would you please come and do that? And you know that if it is God that we don't have bruises on our back from self-flagellation, but if, if it is of God, it goes gently. And we say, God, take this, please. I want to be clean. I want to receive healing. Remember that the process is, first of all, repentance, then cleansing, then healing, then filling, extra filling by the Spirit of God. God doesn't like to fill a dirty vessel. So repentance is not just something you do once every 40 years, once every 20 years. Repentance is a lifestyle. Because if you know who God is and you desire to have more of Him, you, you get the fact that the closer to Him you get, there's more stuff of you that needs to be snipped and purged and cleansed. And you welcome God to do that. And as, God, as, as He does that, Guess what? He will validate what takes place in your life. And how? It's his business. It may be things that are externally awesome and and things that take your breath away or they may be the quiet stuff that changes you from the inside out that you know you've been changed and people around you know you've been changed. And all of that is part of God's design, part of God's purpose to see to it that we're shaped and fashioned more and more and more like Him. And as a result, what comes out of us will be a basic message that speaks to folks around us. And yes, society is what it is. We're not going to change society, but we'll be vessels, we'll be tools used by God to impact one person at a time. This is all part of the validation that God does. As we make a conscious choice to cooperate with His plans, His good plans. Let's pray. And please stand. Lord, we bless your name that you are 
unbelievably patient with us, Lord. You see us and you understand us thoroughly and yet you more than put up with us. We thank you, Lord God, that you are at work both to will and to do your good pleasure. That you are committed to working out your good plans in us, Lord. And Abba Father, it is our desire more and more to understand your plans and to cooperate with them rather than pursue our own agenda, pursue our own plans. Lord God, we pray for each one of us. Lord, you know where in this process each one of us is. And we pray, Lord God, for your gentle, patient ruach, your spirit, Lord God, to come alongside of us and to demonstrate to us where we are, where we need to be. We pray, Lord God, for the grace, the ability, Lord God, to repent. And then to learn, Lord God, to serve you and to collaborate with you, Lord, as you endeavor, as you work, Lord God, through us to impact the lives of other people. And Lord God, we simply pray that you take hold of each one of us, that you would move us in the direction you have for us individually and corporately as a mishpacha. And Lord God, that you would bring us to a place where we are a city that is set on the hill, Lord, where we are light and darkness. Lord God, that in all things, Lord God, you would receive honor and glory that people would look at us and they will give you the thanks and the credit for who you are, Lord, that you would validate what you're doing in our life. And we simply ask that in the name of Yeshua. Amen.